Well, it probably isn't a leap to think that most of us are not using the very first mobile phone we've had. Now, some of you maybe, like if you've only had a phone for five years or less, maybe you're a teenager and you know so on, but probably like if you've had a phone for more than five years, um, most of you um, have had a couple by now. Of course, those of us that use Apple products every year or so, there's a new version. Um, and even if you try to hold off, hold off, you know, spending another $8,000 on a phone, uh, doesn't feel like that. Um, at some point... The operating systems simply say, sorry, that hardware just it doesn't work anymore. Um, and so these smartphones, they're computers, and um, we've, we've grown to appreciate them. Um, some of you still wish you had your original flip phone, I know, uh, back in, in, in those days, or a big old car phone, right, that looked like a brick uh, and so on. Here's, here's the point. For the most part, new is better, right? New means faster, better connection, more features, better cameras, all of that. Um, new tends to be better. We, 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 I know we've got to learn new things, and there's things we appreciate about the way old stuff was, but whether it's phones or other things, new is, new is better. I mean, newer vehicles have newer creature habits and supposedly better performance. Um, and again, the, the analogy or the... the Illustration breaks down, of course. Not everything that is new is better. But, but we tend to, to think of things that way, new things. So why, here's the question, why is our Bible divided into old and new? And, and if new is better, why don't we just like get rid of you know, 39 books on the front end and, and just do the new? Well, I heard some laughing, right, because we, we don't do that. Um, but we have old and new, and, and it's sort of funny, Old Testament, New Testament, what, what does that even mean? Well, just briefly, a testament, as it relates to our Bible, is actually just a way of saying Old Covenant, old, and then New Covenant, and so we say testament, um, but really, those names are, are trying to help God's people, and again, God didn't come up with that, God didn't, you know, speak and tell the editors, you know, divide it that way. But I don't even know the exact history, but at some point, God's people said, let's take these, these 66 books that God's people, through several tests, and this is what's called the, the canonicity, they, they decided 66 books are inspired from God and, and are what God wants for his people. And, and there was a marker, and, and the marker really is, is the Lord Jesus, right? The New Testament, the New Covenant books begin with Jesus, Right, the first four, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the biographies of Jesus, and then we have the the other writings that come. And the simple point is that there was an older covenant. We'll, we'll unpack that in a minute. That that God had actually several covenants that God made with His people, but in the Lord Jesus, and this is what we celebrated a few minutes ago with communion. Right, Jesus said, "This blood that I'm about to shed." Uh, this blood and what you're going to drink, this drink represents the new covenant in my blood. So, so there, there's been a change. And so really, um, that's what it means, Old Testament, New Testament. And, and let me just say it. I hope to say it again. No, we shouldn't get rid of the first 39. They're there for a reason. They, they still serve a purpose, absolutely, even as we understand life now in the new covenant. We'll see it in Hebrews, but, but the old covenant and God's dealing with his people still have a place in the lives of God's people. We need the whole Bible. The whole Bible tells 
God's story, helps us know who God is, what he was doing, and, and so forth. So we'll, we'll get more to that as well. Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 8, and all of that's just meant to kind of get us a little bit of an orientation um, of what, what is happening. And, and at Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to cover the whole chapter today, Lord willing, um, and uh, kind of understand Jesus, right? We keep talking about him being superior or better to angels, to Moses, to the priesthood, and so forth. Well, today is about Jesus the high priest of a better covenant, okay, a better covenant. And so that is where we are headed. One writer puts it this way, our author of Hebrews, who again, we don't know who it is, but the author has already discussed how Jesus is a better priest than any previous priest. And now the writer develops this idea of Jesus being a better priest by describing how Jesus brings in a whole new way of relating to God. And that kind of gets at, in a simplified form, what covenant is all about, how we relate to God. By comparing the old covenant under Moses with the new covenant in Christ, our writer is showing that the law, the sacrificial system, they were always intending to point to Jesus. So three movements then today, if you kind of like to have an outline and helps you know where we're going. First, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 8, and they provide a sort of transition point for us in, in the book. I'll explain in a minute. So first, the transition summary, Hebrews 1 and 2. Then we'll get into, secondly, the better ministry of Jesus' high priesthood, which I feel like we've been talking about every week for the last many weeks, but it's a big theme here. Uh, the better ministry of Jesus' high priesthood. And then number three, the better covenant. Okay, so three movements a transitional summary, section one and two, the better ministry of Jesus as high priesthood, verses three to six, and then the better covenant, verses seven to 13. So look with me, if you would, at verses one and two of chapter eight. We, we ended here last week, and so it's fitting we start here. And, and just listen, it, it's just a wonderful summary. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. In other words, the point of everything he's said is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent or tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. So this is, as I said, a transitional and summary uh, set of verses. Hopefully you hear the summary. I mean, that's, that's what he says. The point of what I've been saying, what I've been saying is, is this. But it's also a transitional section as well. Really, back in chapter 5, verse 1, is where we started to see about the son himself being um, appointed to this new type of priesthood, and we started to get into Melchizedek and, and all of the things uh, that we saw in chapter 7. And then now we're right in the middle of this long section from chapter 5, which goes through chapter 10. There's like a restatement, a summary, which a good pastor, preacher knows to do that. Every once in a while, you know, you got to like come up for air. And now the point of what we're doing, what we're covering, and then we'll go back and, and dive into the deep end of things. And Hebrews is that, as I tried to say last week, so much of what we believe about the Christian faith and why we do the things we do, even communion uh, related to the new covenant. Hebrews just fleshes it out 
in, in so many ways. So here we have this point of what we're saying is this. We have such a priest. And then, uh, as we're going to see now this morning, we start fleshing out the, the new covenant and how he, Jesus is the uh, high priest of this better covenant. And then it's going to get more into his sacrifice again for the next couple of chapters. So it really is sort of a midway point through a larger topic from chapter 5 through chapter 10 on, on him as priest. So right there we have this, this statement uh, in the middle of verse 1, this, this high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty, which is a way of speaking of the Father in heaven. So we have this reference once again to Psalm 110. You may recall, I mentioned a few weeks ago, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. And, and even right here, um, we have this statement of Jesus being seated at the right hand of the throne of the, maj- of the majesty in heaven, which is Psalm 110, verse 1. And he's already quoted that verse in particular in chapter 1, verse 3, in verse 13. He's going to quote it again in chapter 10, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 2. It's like, this is a big deal for the writer to the Hebrews, which means it ought to be a big deal for us. Our true and better high priest, he's, he's at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That, that's where he is. That's his location, right? So Jesus lived some 30 years, was, was crucified. He died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose. And then for some 40 days, he was with his followers, uh, hundreds, in fact, actually. And then he ascended where he is now in this role at the right hand of the Father as, as our great high priest. And we looked last week at one of the things he's doing is making intercession for us. One of his roles is to pray for his people. So good. So amazing. He does this work in heaven, in the very presence of God. And that's the whole point of then what the author is driving at, the end of verse 1, in heaven. And then verse 2, Jesus is a minister. He's serving in the holy places, not the holy of holies like uh, the temple and what was before. But no, in fact, in the very presence of God, in the holy places, uh, which again, he uses several different words to simply say, like it's in heaven. Right? This is where Jesus is now. And it's, it's a true tent or tabernacle, not like the one that men made, but this one in heaven, God made. It's all from God. And this is where Jesus is, is doing his work as high priest. Now, he's not up there offering himself again and again. Uh, no, he, he did his atoning work here on the earth, but he's got his advocating work that he still does. And again, one of those things is he intercedes for us uh, even now. He has, he has work to do as a minister, as a, as a servant, as a high priest, not to atone, that's been done, but he does still, in fact, serve us um, in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And that's, again, a restatement of what we've heard already. So just hear it again. Here's the point, verse 1, we have such a high priest. So our author is summarizing and, and now going to move us into verses 3 through 6 where we see number 2 then this, this better ministry that, that Jesus has, this better ministry. So let me read beginning at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary to 
for this priest, speaking of Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And just pause, as we've looked at over the last few weeks, Jesus is not from uh, the Levitical tribe, so he couldn't be a priest if he were on earth. But again, he's of uh, a different type of priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. He can be king and priest uh, because he wasn't from the, the descendants of Aaron. And so uh, he wouldn't be doing that here, one, because he couldn't, and then number two, because there are priests, uh, according to the law, based on their genealogy, if you will. But then notice verse five. Again, our author is showing that there's this contrast. They, what they did had a place under the old covenant, right? But, but there's this new, better covenant that he's getting ready to introduce. Verse five, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and shadow, right? A shadow isn't the real thing. I'm just looking even in this room Today, we've got lights, and so these chairs are casting uh, a shadow. And we all know what it's like to walk and uh, to see a shadow of, of a vehicle coming or someone else coming on a bicycle or walking. That shadow isn't the real thing, right? No, it's, it's an indication of something else that's real, and uh, that's what our author wants us to know, even, even his first hearers and readers, but, but us as well. All of that... It was, it was very real, but it, it wasn't the real thing. It, it was pointing ahead. It had a, a better thing it was pointing to. For when Moses was about to put up the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, this is from Exodus, he was instructed by God himself saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses was privy to seeing something on the mountain, and then he came down and what he created was just that, a copy, a shadow. It was, it was not that. It, it, could, it couldn't be that. It was a shadow of something else. But as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained. So in, in contrast to this, this earlier tent, tabernacle, ministry of the priests, Christ now has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates from heaven, from the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, is better since it is enacted on better promises. And and that's where we're headed here in just a moment in verse 7. So again, he references Exodus 25, 40, where God says all of that to Moses. But again, it's a shadow. It's it's something that's mimicking the real thing as, as shadows themselves do. But Jesus, his work as high priest, as this high priest of this better covenant, is just that. It's, it's superior, and it's founded on better promises. And those promises are the promises of the new covenant. And now that moves us then to the third movement of the morning in the second section of chapter 8, or the third section of chapter 8, this better covenant. So take a look at verse verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. So again, our author is, is saying similar things as he's been saying. And 
if this first covenant, this first way of doing things could have, could have brought perfection, to use some of the language from last week, in other words, if it had, could have fully made us right with God, there wouldn't have been need for this. But God had it planned. Again, I talked about it quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. David, in, under the inspiration in Psalm 110, prophesies that the Lord Jesus would be this king, but he would be this high priest of a different order than the Levitical priests. And so clearly this stuff, again, not bad, but insufficient. It couldn't do what we needed, which was to make us in a right, perfected relationship with God. So there had to be something new. And so this first covenant, the old covenant, it had its faults. Uh, it, in fact, wasn't faultless, the author is saying. So there was a need for a new, for a second. And so then, beginning at verse 8, we have the longest quote in the New Testament from the Old. Psalm 110 may be the most quoted, but here we have our author quoting Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And just in terms of words, this is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. Notice how he sets it up, verse 8. For he, that's speaking of God, finds fault with them, God's people, when he says in Jeremiah and gives this prophecy of the new covenant. So, so we, are, we are held responsible, and this is one of those mysterious things. Uh, God is sovereign. We talked even in our covenant, or our catechism earlier about God's providence and everything happens according to his will. Uh, it's not merely that God permits things and allows, but no, God is in charge of everything that happens. And so somehow these tensions exist where you have God's sovereignty over everything, but we have human responsibility. God's sovereign, everything happens according to his plan, but there's human responsibility. The, the best picture of this, I think, in our Bibles is in the book of Acts in chapter 4, where we learn that God delivered Jesus up to be crucified. It was according to his plan, but, but then right in that same contest, it speaks of uh, the evil and the sin of the people who crucified him. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Even though God intended it and planned it, it happened according to his plan, people are held responsible for what they do. And, and so that's kind of what, what God is saying here through the writer. God finds fault with his people. Even though this covenant um, was not perfect, it couldn't do what is intended, nonetheless, God's people didn't live up to their part of the covenant. So this new covenant was needed. So let's, let's just pause, though, before we look at Jeremiah, and let's talk about covenant for a moment. I, I mentioned last week how um, none of you woke up thinking, I sure hope my priest is up on his you know, work and, and ready for me, and, right? None of you did. Um, and you weren't thinking of that today either, um, unless you woke up thinking about the Lord Jesus, who definitely uh, is where he needs to be. Probably none of us woke up today thinking about covenant and thinking about this category. So many of these themes, again, uh, in our Bible, in, in our understanding, priesthood and, and law and covenant, king, um, th these are just not categories that are everyday thoughts for us. And so for us, even, even covenant is one of those that is a bit unusual, which, as an aside, is one of the reasons... For, for those of you that are ready to, to become members of SOMA, we, we chose 14 years ago to call our membership covenant membership because of what the word covenant uh, intends uh, or we want it to intend. So what, what is covenant? Well, again, um, I have volumes and volumes on 
my library shelves of books on this and articles, and I'm going to give you just a sliver of, of understanding. But probably the best thing in our day to help us understand covenant is marriage, at least the way God intended. God intended that two people come together, a man and a woman come together, and they stand before a congregation, and, and they're not just signing you know, what the state of California, in our case, wants. Um, they're not just you know, making an informal agreement. I mean, biblical marriage, one man, one woman, is this, this agreement of, of two becoming one flesh. And, and I promise to do this and this and this, and then typically the other person says similar things. And, and so Christian pastors like myself speak of this covenant that these two are entering into uh, before the Lord, before family and friends and witnesses. And, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So we think, yeah, there's a place for that kind of language and recognition um, because it isn't just about, well, yeah, I think I like you. I think I like you. Yeah, why don't we just, you know, get married and, and have our taxes get all out of whack and life, you know, become complicated, right? No, we don't. No, it's about this, this, this covenanting, this, this relationship that two people enter into, not merely... Um, a simple arrangement, a simple contract, but two parties making vows, making promises to one another. And often symbols are exchanged. So again, even today still, most husbands and wives exchange rings as a symbol of the vows, a symbol of the covenant. Well, for God to make a covenant with his people, we could still keep this metaphor going. It's like God is marrying his people. He's portrayed this way in the scriptures as the groom. And under the old covenant, the people of Israel were his bride and promises were made. And God, again, he actually makes several covenants along the way, different things, but, but God fulfilled his part, but the people of Israel, they didn't fulfill their part. When, when God's people, again, the picture of the bride, uh, ran off with other gods and committed idolatry, God was jealous for them. And, and eventually he, in his plan, uh, said, I'm going to pursue my people. And it actually, I'm going to do it under a new covenant. I'm going to make a different, new, better covenant relationship than the others. And again, it's not that God had a plan B because plan A didn't work out. God knew all the while. And all of this was meant to, again, point forward to a better covenant. And so, as one writer summarizes, New covenant Christianity, as we see here in this passage, although this passage isn't exhaustive about everything related to the new covenant, it does sum up the essence of what it means to be a Christian. If you want to know what does it mean to be a Christian, Hebrews 8 and specifically Jeremiah 31 sum up what it means to be a Christian. So let me read verses 8 through 12. And again, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And by the way, as we would learn elsewhere, now Gentiles have been grafted in. And so it isn't just with ethnic Israel, but with anyone that that in fact says yes to the Lord. 
um, the new man, as Ephesians puts it, Jew, Gentile, together in, in this new, new Israel, you might even say. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each to his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Again, to restate what this writer says, although not exhaustive, okay, there's plenty more, but for here and his point about Jesus being the high priest of a better covenant, he quotes Jeremiah 31, and this gives us, again, not exhaustive, but still, it's a summary of the essence of what it means to be a Christian. So any conception then of Christianity that neglects the idea of sin and forgiveness, which according to the new covenant, God deals with, if there's anything that claims to be Christian, Christianity that neglects sin and forgiveness, it's departed from a biblical understanding of new covenant as expressed here in Hebrews 8. The new covenant, in essence, has to do with a relationship with God established by the forgiveness of sins, lived out by the internalization of God's laws, and it's conceptually set against the backdrop of God's working through the people of Israel. So again, the inadequacies of the old covenant. Verse 13, his summary statement. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this is interesting. Uh, Scholars note that what our author does, he quotes this long quote from Jeremiah, and then in, in a rabbinic style of the day, he draws out an inference just really on one point. Okay, You wouldn't call this an exposition, as we think of, of Jeremiah 31. Our author's intention there in verse 13 is simply to draw out one inference from the thrust of this. And it has to do with, again, the fact that the old covenant, it is uh, obsolete. If there's a new, if there's a second, that means the first one is old and obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So again, even as the statement that I mentioned, uh, that this passage, though not exhaustive, sums up the essence of what it means to be a Christian, even now then for the few minutes that remain, let me just kind of move rather quickly through some summary points. And as I said, there's so much in Jeremiah, uh, there's so much related to covenant, and uh, we will scratch the surface and and try to pull out some things. So first, the old covenant was faulty. It was faulty. So again, verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, well, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the old covenant 
was faultless. But again, that doesn't mean it was wrong or sinful, right? God's word had its purposes, especially for God's people in, in the time. Um, but again, it was pointing ahead. It was provisional. It was, it was looking ahead to the fulfillment of it. And then secondly, uh, the old covenant problem was the people were faulty. Not only was the, the covenant itself uh, faulty, but the people were faulty. And that's his setup, as I already mentioned in verse 8. God finds fault with them. God finds fault with them. There, if you have a physical Bible, maybe your digital Bible has it as well, there is a footnote at verse 8 telling you that there's some manuscript evidence for the reading to, to be instead for finding fault with it as opposed to them, which would mean God found fault with the Old Covenant, which we've already seen that. But it does actually, I, I think, the manuscript evidence um, favors what we have in the ESV, that, that God does, in fact, find fault with them. He does. We, we even now, under the, the New Covenant, we fall short. We, we, we don't live up perfectly to what God has done on the inside of us. But especially God's people before the New Covenant, before the work that he did inside, um, they, they too turned away. They broke their covenant. They committed idolatry. Um, again, back to that analogy of the marriage, they, they, God's people were a cheating spouse running off with, with other gods, other functional saviors. But God pursues, but God pursues. And so he gives this promise to Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. There's going to be something better, something new. And, and there's this promise that this work would be done. And here's how Michael Kruger summarizes the new covenant again, um, just a way to help kind of see the big movements of the new covenant. The new covenant brings new power, new people, and a new priest. So let's just comment on that briefly. New power, new people, and a new priest. See, the people needed new Power. In fact, what the people needed was the Holy Spirit to change them from the inside out. It's always been true that God cares about the heart. Even under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, um, we can sometimes, you know, as one writer I read this week put it, that the shades of difference sometimes are just in degrees. Okay? It's not fair to say, well, the Old Covenant was about external rule-keeping only. Because then the implication is that now, under the new covenant, it's not about obedience. And so that's, that's an incorrect way of saying it. God has always been concerned with the inside. And, and yes, the, the old covenant definitely had a list of laws. Okay, the Mosaic uh, covenant law has some 400 laws for how God wanted his people Israel to be governed by. Definitely they were outward things. But there was always his desire uh, for, for them to be people who from the inside uh, are, are being changed and transformed. But, but the, there is no power in the, the law to do that. And this, of course, gets at what the Apostle Paul would talk quite a bit about in Galatians and Romans and so forth, that the, the law itself, the, the commands, the imperatives, they, they can't change us, okay? And so, again, there was this new power 
needed, and this is what the new covenant promises, that God would do a work on the inside. And so when, when a person now, after the work of Christ, uh, is responding to that work and believes in the work of Jesus, right, the perfect life instead of what we fall short in, and then the death on the cross, the, the paying for sin, right, when we trust in that, believe in that, we, we become Christians, and what has happened? Well, God has brought us from death to life, from darkness to light. There's been a, a change a working from the inside out, a new power that comes through the gospel, this, this imperishable seed, as the Bible describes as well. So that was needed, and that was one of the things of the new covenant, new power. And then secondly, the new covenant also involves new people. And I already mentioned this, right? Many people under the nation of Israel that were under the old covenant, they did perform the, the rituals, they kept the law, but, but not all of them believed. This was just life. This is what it meant to be a person of, of Israel, a Jewish person, as opposed to being of these other nations and tribes along. They, they did what it meant to be a person, a Jewish person, but they didn't all believe. They didn't all trust in what God was doing. So the people were often told and told one another, know the Lord. So look down here. So verse 11, right? It says, they shall not, under the new covenant, under the work that I do from the inside out, that new power, it'll be a time when they shall not have to teach one another saying, know the Lord, know the Lord. Don't just do these things, but believe him, know him. No, he says, they will know me. When, when I do this work on the inside, the new covenant will cause everyone that is responding to the new covenant to, in fact, believe. And, and again, it doesn't falls to merely those that are ethnic Israel. It would be to anyone, to anyone. We also need to remember that, um, as I said, we, we fall short. And so the, this new work, right, it doesn't mean perfection. We don't, we don't come to Christ and, you know, wait for a few seconds, a few minutes, and then, you know, sinless, right? No, it, we are being progressively sanctified is how theologians describe it. We are sanctified in one sense. We are holy. God sees us as saints because of Christ. Positionally, if you will, that is true of us. But we are saints who sin. We are at the same time just and sinner as the reformers described it. And we are progressively being transformed into the image of Christ. Progressive sanctification is happening. And so let's not forget the message in this book don't fall away. Don't turn to apostasy, right? There's a danger that some people who will have claimed to have received the new covenant turn out not to be, in fact, and they drift off and become apostate. And so, again, there's still sanctifying that God is at work doing in, in us. And in fact, not everyone even now who claims is in fact born again. And we, we've talked about that. Jesus talked about that. Seed falls all over the place, and some people show signs of life, but the cares of this world and other things end up choking it out, and it proves to have not remained. So, new, new power, new people, and then thirdly, new, a new priest. And this is the new priest we've been talking about, as I've said, for several weeks. Verse 12, I will be merciful, God says, toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. We have in the Lord Jesus a priest who enables sin 
to finally and fully be forgiven. There isn't a need to yearly have a high priest go and offer sacrifices. It's done. God has forgiven us in Christ for sins past, for sins present, for sins yet future. Under the new covenant, it's fully achieved. We are forgiven. And God says, I will remember their sins no more. And so this makes the new covenant that much better, new power, new people, new priest. And again, don't miss at the core of that, that new covenant and new priestly work of Jesus as the new covenant priest, he's dealing with sin. And so I said it, but any form of Christianity that doesn't talk about the need for forgiveness and having our sins dealt with, it's, it's not biblical, New Testament, new covenant Christianity. That is key to being a son or daughter of, of our Father in heaven, having our sins dealt with. Verse 13, and speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And we will move next week, Lord willing, into chapter 9 and more on the first covenant as juxtaposed to the new covenant. So two things this morning in conclusion. First, we need our entire Bible. And, and so I, I started you know, by making this kind of joke about old and new things. And, and even here, right, what is old is becoming obsolete. I, I'm, I have a section of um, the living room floor right now that has obsolete tech devices that I need to one of these days here take it to the graveyard for obsolete tech devices, right? We all know what that's like. I mean, just it, They accumulate. Um, well, the old covenant has been made obsolete, but that doesn't mean we, we rip out 39 books from, from our Bible and, and ignore them. We, we need to read Genesis and, and, and read again and again that in the beginning, God. Before us, before creation, as wonderful as it is, Right? Before everything, God existed. And then this God that existed spoke the world into creation. We need that. We need to be reminded uh, of that. And of course, we need to be reminded of his choice in choosing Abraham out of all the people of the world because he's God and he chose Abraham. Not because Abraham deserved it, but he chose Abraham and said, I, I'm going to work through you and your descendants. And, and, and we need that reminder that, that he worked through a people. And those people that had eventually the law and, and the covenants, the old covenants, they were to be a blessing to the nations. They were to, to shine forth who God is so that Gentiles would turn and believe. And, and yet they, they, they couldn't do it. And of course, we need the history. We need to learn about all of it uh, from not only God rescuing them out of Egypt, giving them the law, and then their, their time in the wilderness, moving into the promised land, and, and the time of the judges would follow. And then, of course, the kings, all of it. We need the story to show us and point us that this, this reveals God's character, what matters to him, but that something else was coming, something else was coming. Um, yesterday, um, we were at a, a restaurant having breakfast, and we got into a, a conversation with uh, the gentleman next to us um, about a lot of different topics, but at some point, it seemed appropriate to, to plant the flag of what I believed and so I said, well, we're, our, our family, were Christians, and, and I said something. And that kind of perked his interest. And, oh, well, 
what, what type of Christian are you? And so um, there was some discussion back and forth, um, and, and, and we had a good discussion, very, very friendly. If, if you were with us last Sunday night for the theology, Sunday night theology, we, we watched this talk from Tim Keller on how to engage people now in an increasingly post-Christian world and how when, when we do, there needs to be some conflict, some, some traction, um, appropriately so. And I think we had that a little bit. Um, there, there wasn't you know, any kind of arguing, but, but just, just good dialogue. And, um, but what I, I was reflecting on it later with um, those of us that were there, um, really, per his understanding of Christianity and religion, if we had had more time, and, and we kind of got there, but I was thinking, like, what I needed to get to with him was, for us, it boils down to this, this Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead some 2,000 years ago. Like, like we have to get there, because then we can start to unpack, you know, history and, and denominations and, and other religions and so forth. Like, like, it boils down to that. We don't need to debate all these other things that are secondary for, for this guy. It was like, okay, for us as Christians, we, we believe that Jesus died and rose. Um, so that, right, that's new covenant stuff. But, but nonetheless, if that's true, if we get there, then we start to show how God was preparing his people always and pointing toward that. So we, we need our Bible. We need our Bible. I love this. I read this this week. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it is the moon in relationship to the new covenant sun. In the darkness of the Old Testament era, it, the moon, if you will, shone brightly. The old covenant shone brightly, giving insight to the holy, loving God of the universe. But this true, older light has now been eclipsed by the full intensity of revelation in God's Son. So we need our entire Bible, but we need to understand how it works, how they connect. So that's number one. Number two, church, God really loves us. He really does. And we've sung about that already, and we're going to end our morning by singing about that again. He must really love us to know that um, even though he finds fault in us by not obeying what he's called us to, he so loves us that he sends the Lord Jesus this new and better high priest and through Jesus gives this new and better covenant where he does the work in us so that we can then freely love and, and serve him and, and be obedient to what he's called us to. He, he loves us. He transforms us. He's transforming you. He's at work in you. Would you stand and let me pray and then let's sing about that love God has for us. Father, if we're just honest with ourselves for a matter of seconds and with you then, we're, we're aware that we, we, we fall short of living the way you call us to live. Even as people, most of us I think today, who have been changed and brought from death to life, from darkness to light by the gospel, by the new covenant, the Lord Jesus. 
We've been transformed. We are a new creation in Christ. But we, we sin in word and thought and deed. But you've dealt with our sin. We are forgiven in Christ. And you are sanctifying us. You are transforming us, morphing us into the image of Jesus. And it's because you love us and it's your love that did all of that. And I pray today we would walk in obedience, not because we're trying to earn anything from you. We can't earn the love. We can't earn the forgiveness, but because you've done it. And so we, we come again for you. We repent again and say, Lord, have your way. Lord, do your work in, in us. Forgive me for these things. I, I repent. I, I'm sorry, Lord. I want to live in light of what you've done in me through the new covenant, this new power that's in me, my new high priest who's given himself for me once and for all and now prays for me and, and is my, my high priest, my high king. So Lord, to that we give ourselves because of your great love. In Jesus' name.